All right. Youth guy comes and the music gets turned up. Y'all notice that? All right. I wanted to wake y'all up this morning because I figured with a packed uh, church week, we had three services this week. We had Sunday, last Sunday. We had uh, Wednesday was Christmas Eve, and then we had, of course, this morning. And some of y'all are, have done the marathon, right? You're on your third service. And so I get it. Sometimes it can run together a little bit. I wanted y'all to be awake and energized this morning. Um, I hope you guys had a good Christmas. Uh, I hope that y'all were safe. I hope y'all didn't get too sick. I think a few people probably did. That's probably why they're not here this morning. Um, I hope you didn't lose your witness over the holiday, right? Family can do that to us sometimes. We can, uh, can get around some of the people that we love the dearest, and they can pull out some of the worst um, inside of us. I see some visitors this morning. My name is Ryan Wheat. I'm the student pastor here at Sabine Creek Fellowship. Um, I wanted to take a moment before I got too deep into the message to um, really tell you guys how thankful I am and how lucky we are to have Shannon pour into us on a weekly basis. Um, he lets me preach every couple of months, and for me, it is a, it's an undertaking to get into God's Word and seek inspiration, but for him, he does it on a weekly basis, and God pours knowledge into him just by the truckload, and he in turn pours that into us. And so we are extremely lucky to have him here. Now, he's not actually here this morning, so he's not going to hear me say that, although there is part of me that does wish that maybe he'll go listen to the podcast and maybe hear some of that, which if you didn't know, we do have podcasts of the service every week. You can either go on SoundCloud and uh, do a search for Sabine Creek Fellowship, all one word, or you can go to our website, sabinecreekfellowship.com, click on sermons, and you can hear the message that we do every single week. All right, let's see. I managed to thank the preacher. I plugged the website. That's really all he asked me to do while he was gone, so uh, I guess you guys are dismissed. We're going to be in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, specifically, we're going to be in chapter 13. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Uh, bookmark that, kind of put your finger there. We're going to kind of get into that a little bit more here in just a second. Every year, Americans become obsessed with New Year's resolutions, right? It's an opportunity for us to start a brand new year fresh and new. We get to take that uh, overwhelming, pretty stressful, usually relatively unhealthy 2014. We can put that behind us. We can go buy a yoga mat, maybe a gym membership and some dumbbells, and we can start all over again. In 2014, all of the top New Year's resolutions revolved either around fitness or money. People wanted to uh, look better, they wanted to lose weight, and they wanted to save more money. But here's the deal. Of 150 million people that made New Year's resolutions last year, only 12% managed to keep them all the way to the end of the year. Half of that 150 million actually quit their resolution within two weeks. Now, here's the deal. I think saving money and losing weight are good things. I think that it's actually biblical. I think if you look in Scripture, you see a biblical basis for both of those things, no matter what time of year it is, whether it's a New Year's resolution or not. And the Lord knows that I could probably do a little bit better with both of those things myself. But here's the deal. This morning, I want to propose a New Year's resolution for you guys that I think is imperative for us as a uh, as a body of believers, as followers of Christ, to bring with us into this next year. It doesn't involve waking up at 5 a.m. for CrossFit. You can still eat cheeseburgers, and you don't have to give me any money, although I'll take it from you if you want to give it to me. It revolves around what theologians refer to as the three divine virtues, or the three theological virtues. Basically, 
there's a consensus that these three things are the basis or the foundation for Christian moral activity or a Christian moral life. It's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. All right, see, I knew you guys, good things are happening this morning. Y'all are with me. Most of us are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. Even if you've never stepped foot into a church, if you've never heard a sermon preached ever, you've wandered into a wedding, and at some point, 1 Corinthians 13 was read aloud for you to hear. All right? Um, The movie Wedding Crashers actually had a bet on what the verse was going to be that was read at the wedding in the movie, and it was 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you were born in the church, if you were raised in the church, there's a good chance that at some point you had your eye on a very special somebody and you wrote them a love letter and you referenced 1 Corinthians 13 in that letter. Now, for those of you that are born outside of the 90s, a letter is something where you take words, you put them into sentences, structure them in paragraphs, you usually write it with a pen and place it in an envelope. It's like a text, but it's a whole lot better. There's something, though, within 1 Corinthians 13 that I think goes so much deeper than love letters. It's a resolution for the church. Paul says that there are all of these things, and when all of those things go away, three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, a little background on this particular piece of text. Um, The book of Corinthians was written most likely by Paul while he was in Ephesus. Um, He wrote it during his second missionary journey. He had gone to Corinth um, and kind of came into this booming metropolis. It was really a good time for the city of Corinth. It was kind of coming off of a recession. It was exploding. Um, It had recently been the center of uh, worship for the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. But now the city center of Corinth is boasting um, all of these idol altars for Apollo and Zeus, Artemis, Poseidon, of course, Aphrodite. The people of Corinth can go into the city center and essentially peruse what God they want when they want that God and for whatever reason they want to follow him, right? It's kind of like going to, uh, going to the market to pick out your evening meal, only they get to pick out what God they want to meet their desires. Now, when Paul shows up, um, he actually comes into Corinth and starts making tents. He starts hanging out with Priscilla and Aquila and starts preaching the good news of the gospel to the people of Corinth. Slowly but surely, that message starts to take root. That good news, that gospel that he's sharing starts to grow. He moves into a house that's located right there next to the synagogue, and he starts to lay the foundation for the early church in Corinth. He's essentially the first home church planter here. He ended up staying for a year and a half in Corinth before he ends up heading out to Ephesus. And it's while he's in Ephesus that he gets news of the state of the church in Corinth. When Paul had left, all things were good, but unfortunately when he left, they started to go off track a little bit. The people started to latch on to this Christianity um, more because they could make a name for themselves than they could really make a name for Jesus. They started doing things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and healing and doing all of these miracles, but they weren't doing it in the name of Christ, and they certainly weren't doing it motivated by love. They were doing it because they were motivated by their own selfish desires to make a name for themselves. And so Paul gets this news that the church is splitting. There's division. There's immorality that's starting to run rampant. The place that he had built up is not the place that it was now. 
And so he writes this letter to the Corinthians. It's mostly a letter of kind of correction. He rebukes them. He starts to instruct them in the ways that the church should be. And then we stumble across chapters 12, 13, and 14, which is the area that we're going to be in this morning. Now, chapter 12 lists off all of these spiritual gifts, and it talks about the importance of all of the spiritual gifts. Uh, Basically, if he was talking to the modern church, Paul would probably be saying something along the lines of, the person that makes coffee in the morning or passes out worship guides or serves in our children's ministry is just as important and just as critical to the overall function as the ruggedly hipster worship leader is, all right? I didn't mean it, okay? I'm sorry. And then he goes on into verse 14, and he basically says, these are the spiritual gifts, and these are the instructions on how to use these spiritual gifts, right? So chapter 12, he's listing spiritual gifts. He's telling you how important they are. Chapter 14, he's telling you how to use those spiritual gifts properly. And then sandwiched right in the middle of that is chapter 13, which is this almost poetic love poem. Here's what it says. We're going to be starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we're going to dig a little bit deeper into it says this, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. These three remain. All of this other stuff, the music, the lights, the building, the church camps, the life groups, the student ministries, the children's ministry, all of that stuff is going to go away, and the only thing that will remain is faith, hope, and love. What I want to look at is what living a life of faith, hope, and love is all about And what I want to do is, as a church today, to make a resolution that moving into 2015 and and beyond, to be able to embody these virtues. The first virtue that Paul lists here is faith. Now, I have some friends that are not believers. Um, They are staunch atheists. They're staunch agnostics. And frequently, I will sit down with them, and we get in these very calm, polite conversations where we start to talk about our uh, differing worldviews. And it seems like at some point in that conversation, the word faith comes up, and it's usually in some sort of negative context, right? I will be talking to them, and they'll start talking about science. Science is so factual, but you are only grounded in faith. Because the truth is, a secular society looks at 
Christian belief and Christian faith as being baseless, as being grounded in nothing factual, as being sort of a wishy-washy game. In fact, if you Google the definition for faith, here's what will pop up for you. It says, strong belief in God or in doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. That's what Google says. It's almost like Secular society looks at Christians as being simple-minded, sort of latching onto something that's easy for them to follow because it's not grounded in anything concrete. But that isn't the case. And that's not what Paul is saying here either. Um, If you want to look kind of at an example of the faith that Paul is referring to, you can go to Hebrews 11. Um, And in Hebrews 11, it says this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might hear words like faith and hope, and you kind of go, I don't know. That sounds like a whole lot of unknown, right? I mean, faith and hope, where is that grounded in anything? But what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying here. He is saying that our faith, our trust, is an assurance. It's a guarantee, It brings our future hope into a very present reality. He then goes on to list a whole bunch of people that have done a whole lot of amazing things, stepping out in that faith and in that assurance. The great Blondin wasn't listed there, but he was a wire walker. He was a tightrope walker. In 1855, he made a name for himself by walking across Niagara Falls. He became very popular, and throngs of people would flock to see him do these daring feats. One of his uh, favorite tricks, he would actually walk out on the tightrope and he would take a stove with him, right? Which in 1855, I can only imagine, was quite heavy. And he would take it out on the tightrope, he would make an omelet while carrying that stove, and then he would lower that omelet down to the people that were in boats fishing below him, all right? And people would cheer and they would clap and they thought it was the coolest thing they'd ever seen. And then eventually he would come out with a wheelbarrow and he would get to the edge and he would ask them, do you think that I can walk across this tightrope with this wheelbarrow? And they would always erupt in applause and affirmation. They would be screaming because they would know that he could do what he said he could do. And then the great blonde would look into the crowd and say, okay, who wants to ride in the wheelbarrow? And they would fall silent. Nobody would move. And then eventually one person would get up and would get in the wheelbarrow and he would walk them back and forth on the tightrope. I think this is a perfect picture of what a life in our faith looks like. See, there's people that want to stand on the bank. They want to watch. They love the show. They love the entertainment factor of all of it. They might even stand in the crowd and affirm what they see and what they believe. But when the time comes for them to step out and get in the wheelbarrow, they fall silent. The faith, though, that we see lived out in this particular example, somebody doesn't get into that wheelbarrow because they hope that he can make it across that rope. They they don't put their life in his hands because they think he might make it and might not. They don't want to fall to a watery grave. It's that they have seen the factual evidence that he can do what he says he can do. Biblical faith is not something that's dormant. It's not something that's baseless. It's an assurance that is so strong that it compels us into action. Faith moves us. When you live a life by faith and of faith, and you live a life that reflects that faith. Here's the deal. You can't see faith. If I had a big jar of faith up here, it wouldn't have anything in it. 
the only way that faith can be expressed is through that action. Paul goes on to list hope. If faith is the assurance of things hoped for, then what is it that we hope for? Where are we placing our hope? Here's the depressing news for this morning, okay? Everything in this world is going to let you down at some point, okay? It's all going to let you down. You can't put your hope in a job that you might lose. You can't put your hope in a home that's falling apart. You can't put your hope in your health that is slowly drifting away from you. Here's the deal. I consider myself to be a pretty decent husband. I love my wife. I do. But if she puts her hope in me, she's going to be in pretty rough shape, okay? I'm going to let her down on a daily basis. Notice, though, that I didn't say that she was going to let me down on a daily basis because I love my wife, right? Here's the good news, though. The good news is the gospel, the good spiel, My hope has nothing to do with the promises of this world because I know that I have grounded my hope solely in the promises of heaven and the sacrifice that Christ paid for my ability to be there with God on the cross, the price and the sacrifice that he made for me and that he made for you. You might have heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, A quick refresher, okay? Um, King Nebuchadnezzar has built this idol, and he wants, the, uh, wants everybody to worship it. And he says, whenever the horn blows, whenever there is music, I want you to worship this golden idol. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshipped the one God. They didn't worship the golden idol, and so they refused to bow down and worship it. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets word of this. He realizes that they are disobeying him, and so he sends some people out to get them and bring them to him, and he gives them an ultimatum. Worship the idol or you're going to be put into a fiery furnace. I'm going to burn you alive if you don't do what I tell you to do. It's pretty rough. Um, We don't always agree with the current administration, but no one's throwing us into fiery furnaces yet. Now, here's their response, though, and this is what I think hope for us looks like. It's in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, I want you to catch some important phrases that are in this. He says, is able, will deliver, but if not... Basically, what they're saying there is he can, he will, and even if he doesn't. Now, it's kind of a weird way to say that, though. That's it's kind of an odd phrase, but here's the deal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego see the bigger picture, right? Their hope isn't grounded in the earthly resolution of their current predicament. If they were saved, great. If not, even better, because God had so much more for them than anything that they could find here. I hear people, uh, I hear these stories of people that find themselves in life and death situations, right? They, they get trapped in a cave with a boulder on top of their arm or something, and they cry out to God and they say, God, would you just save me? If you will just save me from this one situation, I will follow you. I will change my life. Just get me out of this. Rescue me. But what these people are missing is that he already has. 
This is why through all of our trials and all of our difficulties, we can look them in the eye and we can say, he can and he will, but even if he doesn't, it's because we have our eyes on God and our eternity with him is our prize. Our hope sees the promises of God. And the greatest of these is love. It's important to point out here uh, the type of love that Paul is talking about. Typically, when you're reading Scripture, there's going to be a few different Greek words that are used to describe love. Um, There's eros, which is more of a romantic, uh, carnal, physical type of love. Um, It's usually a love of of taking from somebody. You enter into an eros-type relationship with somebody when you want some sort of physical or emotional fulfillment from them. That is eros. If Marvin Gaye wrote a love song in Greek, eros is the word that he would use, if you know what I'm getting at, okay? Then there's phileo. Phileo is a friendship kind of love. You think of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. Um, It's a two-way kind of relationship. It's where I'm giving you something and you're giving me something, right? It's uh, usually pretty equal. It's kind of a a relationship of convenience where we're both kind of um, achieving something from that relationship. But Paul doesn't use either of those words when he's talking about love in this chapter. He uses agape. Agape is a word that means unconditional love. It's a type of love between two people that goes beyond the way that they are or the way that they should be or the way that they hope that they're going to be someday. It disregards any form of expectations or any level of conditions. It doesn't require anything from that other person. It's a completely sacrificial type of love. It's the type of love that we get from God. Scripture tells us repeatedly that there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. There's nothing that uh, we can say or do. There's no activity that can ever earn the level of love that he gives to us. If these three virtues uh, are supposed to be the virtues of a believer, if our faith is supposed to move us, if our hope is supposed to allow for us to see, then this love that we have received freely is something that we are supposed to give Jesus talks about it in John chapter 15, verse 8 through 17. He says this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He's talking a little bit about that faith and action there. Bear fruit, showing yourself. Verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. But Ryan, you just said, that there's no conditions, there's no commands I'm supposed to keep. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. That's it. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from the Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Show that faith, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. Verse 17, this is my command. Love each other. Love each other. Um, There is uh, kind of this idea in the military that at some point you may have to give your life up for somebody else. 
Um, in recruit training, the drill instructors do this thing where they'll uh, wad up a sheet of paper and they will walk in a room, and without you knowing it, they'll throw the sheet of paper in the room, and what they were, are looking for is the recruit that will leap onto that sheet of paper as if it were a grenade, okay? That's kind of the way that military life is. And we latch onto, in the military, this particular verse where it talks about giving your life up for your brother, that there's no greater love than this. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to make a bold statement here, but stay with me, okay? Jumping on a grenade or jumping in front of a bullet for somebody is the easy part. And that sounds really wild, okay? That's a split-second thing to do quickly for somebody. But what we're talking about here and what Paul is talking about isn't a split-second decision that saves somebody's life. He's talking about a love that lives out into fruition on a daily basis, in context, Paul has listed off all of these activities. He said, I don't care how good the worship music is. I don't care how good the preacher speaks. I don't care how nice the building is. All of that stuff means nothing if it is not grounded in love. He sums it up. He says, all of your service, it all is going to go away and only these things will remain. And the reality is, is even of faith, hope, and love, our faith is going to come to fruition, Right? We're eventually one day going to be with God and we're going to get the, our hope fulfilled of those promises. But that love, that unconditional love is going to endure forever. We have a mission statement with our youth and it's basically to connect people with God and connect uh, students with one another, right? But more appropriate in this particular context would probably be to say to love God and to love people. But the only way that can happen, the only way that you can give this unconditional love is if you have received that unconditional love. You can't give something that you have not been given. So what that means is, is I'm speaking to two different people right now. I'm speaking to the believer that walked in here that has already entered into a relationship with Jesus. You've been given that gift of love, that unconditional love that says, no matter how busted or broken you are as a sinner, I've got you. You are going to be with me because of my sacrifice. Okay? And that means that if you're going to follow what Paul says, if you've already received that gift, then you are commanded to go out by Christ, to go out and love others. Agape love. It's not a two-way street. The second person that I'm talking to this morning is the unbeliever that walked in and said, hey man, this is a simple church. I was just glad because there were cows on the way in. I can wear what I want to wear, okay? But I'm a little bit curious I hear you talking about this hope that surpasses all things. I hear you talking about this faith that propels you into action, and I hear about this unconditional love, and man, that sounds amazing. If you want to give that unconditional love, then you have to get that unconditional love from the Father. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be here after the service in order to give you more information if that's something that's pulling on your heart. If you don't want to stay after, because that's kind of weird, fill out a communication card, and we'll get in touch with you. Maybe you don't trust the student guy, okay? The real pastor will be here next week, okay? I want to get you in touch with somebody. What does your 2015 look like? Are you hoping for a sleeker, slimmer, more money-wise version of yourself? What would happen, though, if you came into 2015 and you started to live out of faith that moved and propelled you into action, a hope that saw the promises of God and a love that loved and gave itself unconditionally. Let's pray together. Father God, um, 
you have given us a gift that we cannot live up to. But God, we know that that gift doesn't stop with us. We know that gift doesn't stop within the walls of this church. That gift um, is uh, commanded for us to take out into the world. And so I pray that if there's anything that we walk away with this morning, it's that we should be, uh, that it is our duty to take that love to the people that have not heard about it. I pray that as we go back to our jobs, as we go back to our homes and back into our routines, and as we start to drift further away from this Christmas holiday, that um, we don't let that slow our forward progress. I pray that as we go into this new year, this new month, and as we try to live a new type of lifestyle, that it's defined more by you than it is about us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for everything you do for us on a daily basis. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, amen.